series of study. And uh, to our guests, we will tell you that if you're interested, we provide, if we're teaching an ongoing series, we'll provide previous lessons to you at no cost. In fact, we just provide all the lessons, whatever you want. It's We don't ever charge for any of that. We can get it to you in CD form or a thumb drive, or you can go to our website and download the messages there at no cost. Amen. But... Um, we are, as I said, we began a series last week, very important, very important series of study. And, uh, in fact, we showed you from the Scripture, it is the most important, the most important topic in all of the Scripture. And uh, while some would say salvation is the most important, uh, Jesus had a different idea about it. He came to seek and save that which was lost, but... He clearly stated what is the most important passage in the Scripture. And uh, so we're going to be talking about uh, this subject here today. If you would turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 16, and we'll begin reading with verse number 13. Matthew, chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am. And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Praise God. Jesus asked, Whom do men say that I am? And then he turned around and asked the secondary question, that is, who do you say that I am? And we're going to talk about who he is here today. Amen. It is because of who he is that we have salvation. Praise God. Amen. So we're going to talk about it here for a while today, and we'll go as far as time and the Lord will allow. Amen. If you would put your Bibles down, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer one more time. We need the touch of God in everything we do. Amen. The arm of the flesh is weak, and it is incapable of doing a spiritual work. And so we need the power of the Spirit for God to do what He wants done in this service today. Would you join with me right now? Let's ask the Lord to speak to us. God, we thank you for the goodness of the Lord. We thank you for the presence of God that we feel in this house, for indeed we know that you are here, and you're here in a very special way. I thank you, Lord, for each and every one that's gathered here, and I'm asking, Lord, that needs could be met through the preaching of your word today, I'm asking that you would grant a spirit of revelation, that understanding and comprehension could come as we go through the pages of Scripture today. Lord Jesus, we worship you and we give you thanks. We give you honor and glory. Have your way in this service, O Lord, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Praise God. Would you praise him with me just one more time before you're seated today? 
Could we do that? I feel his presence here in this house. I love you, Jesus. I thank you, Master. What a wonderful Savior you are. What a wonderful Savior you are. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. 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 God bless you. You may be seated this morning. Amen. I, um, I want to begin this morning. In fact, Brother Thompson, if you've got your Bible, this is not in the notes. But I want to, I want to start in the book of John chapter uh, 17. And we will begin with one verse of Scripture that I just want to use this morning to, to uh, uh, help us in our introductory remarks. It is important that we understand this principle. In John chapter 17, uh, Jesus is praying for his disciples. It's the night of his betrayal. And he makes this statement in John 17 and 17. Sanctify them through the truth. Thy word is truth. All right. Jesus made a clear and definite statement. He said, thy word is truth. It is important that we all understand that, that it is not a matter of popular opinion that determines truth. Uh, you know, I, I like to say God does not operate a democracy. I thank God for our democracy here, but God doesn't operate his kingdom on the basis of democracy. God doesn't take a vote and say, how many of you think this, and how many of you think that, and whatever the majority is, well, then that's truth. But Jesus made a declarative statement when he said, thy word is truth. Now, his word is forever settled in heaven. And so I'm here to tell you today, it doesn't matter what anybody believes, whether it's majority or minority. What matters is, what does the word of God say? That's what's important. Amen. In fact, the Apostle Paul said that if it's necessary, let's just let God be true and every man be a liar. And so he said, I don't care if 100% of the world thinks something. Uh, if God says otherwise, then what God said is what's right. You know, um, when, when, when God spoke to, to, uh, to Noah and, and told him to build an ark, you understand that, that there were only eight people saved on that ark. Now, I don't know. I don't know what the world's population is. I was surprised to find there are a number of, of scholars and theologians who believe that there were several billion people on the face of the earth in Noah's day. And I think that's very possible when you've got people living uh, 7,000, 8,000, 9,000 years. Praise God. 900 years. Let's, let's cut that down. Praise God. Amen. 700, 800, 900 years. And, uh, and so I think it's very easy when people are living 900 years and they're having children during this time. It's very easy for the population to multiply. I don't know what the population was. I don't know what the number was. But I do know this. Peter said only eight were saved. And so here's what it tells me. It doesn't matter, Brother Thompson. If it was only 5,000 people on the face of the earth, there were only eight saved. And God did not change his plan to include more people. What God said was truth. Well, hallelujah. And so we've got to understand that. And as we get into this study, it is important that we understand that it's what the Word of God says that matters. Not popular opinion, not, not denominational teachings, 
not organizational handbooks. What matters is what does the Bible say? And, and then I know there are those who, uh, who say, well, you know, people make the Scriptures say what they want to, and I understand that. But again, Peter said that no Scripture is of any private interpretation. And so what that means is, it's not a matter of this is how I interpret it, and that's how you interpret it. What we've got to do is find out how God interprets it. And the way we're going to do that is by searching the Scriptures. Because for every Scripture that is controversial, every Scripture that we may not understand uh, on the surface, I'm here to tell you there is another passage of Scripture somewhere in this book that's going to explain what it is that you don't understand. It's there if we'll take the time to search for it. And so that's, that's an important principle as we continue on in this study today, we've got, to, we've got to know that what matters is what does the Bible say. That's what matters. That's what matters. Now, now let, me, let me do a very brief review, and I want to make this as brief as possible because we've got a lot of ground to try to cover today in this, uh, in this series. And so let me, let me do the review as briefly as possible. We, we looked at last week the questions that Jesus asked his disciples in asking them, first of all, what is uh, popular opinion concerning who I am? And the disciples gave various answers. And then Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And it was when Peter made a declaration of the identity of Jesus Christ that the Lord turned around and said, you're a blessed man. You got this by revelation. It didn't come because somebody gave it to you or somebody handed it to you or even somebody explained it to you. But Peter, the reason you know who I am is because the Spirit has revealed it to you. I'm going to tell you something, and we've got to understand this, saints of God. It's not enough. I can do my part as a preacher of the gospel to try to declare to you what the Bible says. But we need, we need God to open our understanding. The carnal mind cannot understand the things of God. Uh, the carnal mind is enmity against God. The carnal mind hates the things of God. And so it rejects what God has to say. So we can't comprehend the things of God with our carnal mind. We need God to touch us and grant to us a spiritual revelation. Now, uh, we're reaching a point in time in which I need to qualify what I mean by revelation. I say that because in all of my trips to Africa, it's getting to be quite a popular thing over there for men to claim that they've gotten some new revelation from God. That is contrary to the Bible. It's contrary to the Scripture. But they're saying the Spirit told me this, so that makes it all right. And, and when I tell you, church, you cannot imagine the depths of depravity that we see behind the pulpit there. And I'm telling you the truth. It's, it's unimaginable, the things that go on in the name of Christianity. And it's because people are claiming they've gotten a revelation from the Spirit. I'm going to tell you, God gave us an anchor. And everything that comes has got to be anchored in this. And, and, and listen, listen. Thy word is truth. Jesus also made the statement, I am the way and the Truth. Jesus is the truth. 
In fact, Jesus is the living Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, verse 14 says, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the living Word of God. Therefore, the Spirit of God will never contradict the Word of God. If you get a revelation from a spirit that contradicts the Bible, it wasn't God's spirit that gave you that revelation. So when I use the word revelation, I'm not talking about some new idea or concept. I'm talking about the spirit revealing to you the mysteries of his word. And that's what Paul said is supposed to happen, according to the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, God's supposed to expose, expound unto us the, the, the mysteries of the Scripture. God's supposed to enlighten our minds. We find in the book of Luke, chapter 24, that with his own disciples who walked with him for three and a half years, they were close, they saw his miracles, they heard his teachings, but even they had to have a moment in which the Lord opened their understanding. Let me, let me just, again, this is not in the notes, but go over to Luke chapter 24. And uh, I'll get to my notes in a few minutes, maybe. But Luke chapter 24, I want you to see that even with the disciples, they had to have a revelation. And this was at the end of the Lord's ministry. In fact, this passage in Luke 24 is taking place moments before the Lord ascends into heaven. So this was at the end of it. Can you imagine? They've been with him all this time, and there are still things about the Scripture they don't understand. Luke chapter 24 and verse 45. Then opened he their then understanding, he their understanding that, they might, that understand they might understand the Scriptures. And you can, if you've got your Bible open, you can skip on down and see in verse 50, he led them out as far as to Bethany, lifted up his hands, blessed them. It came to pass while he blessed them. He parted from them, carried into heaven. They worshiped. So, so this was, I mean, these were his last words on earth. And the last thing he did was to make sure that his disciples got a revelation. They had a clear understanding of what the Scriptures taught. Now listen, if those men who walked most closely with him, who witnessed his miracles firsthand, who heard his teaching firsthand, if they needed God to open their understanding, how much more do we need it today? We need God to grant us revelation and I believe he does that through his word. All right, so, so Jesus blessed Peter because he had gotten a revelation, and we need that revelation. Now, we, uh, Jesus asked the question about himself personally. We, we've expanded this in this series of studies. We're, we're talking about the Godhead in general. We want to talk about who do we say that God is. And who do men say that God is? And so we've, we've gone through this and we've talked about, again, popular opinion and the majority opinion and, and, and all of that. And, and the identifying as God the Father, as the first person of the Trinity. And, and, and uh, uh, they say God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And 
God the Holy Ghost, the third person of the Trinity. And, and this is the way that modern theologians uh, try to explain the Godhead. I'm here to tell you there is a much simpler definition based solely upon the Scriptures. And it's important that we get the definition that the Scripture gives us. You see, the conclusion of man's theology with regards to the Godhead, and I don't care, I've, I've been to a number of websites, I've been through a number of, of theological references, and I'm telling you the conclusion of the scholarly uh, discussion of the Godhead is always this, that the Trinity is a mystery beyond man's comprehension. It's impossible for us to understand. That's what the scholars tell us. I'm here to tell you, I'm here to tell you, uh, not to throw stones at anybody else and not to claim that I'm a greater scholar than they are. I don't think you have to be a great scholar to understand the Scriptures. I think it's simple enough that a wayfaring man, though a fool, should not err therein. I think that it's clear in the Scripture. I'm going to tell you, the Godhead is not a mystery beyond comprehension. In fact, and this is in your notes, but, and we'll start here in Romans chapter 1, Paul said the exact opposite. Romans 1 and verse 20. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Alright, now let's stop right here. They are what? Clearly seen. They are what? Clearly seen. Clearly seen. Everyone say clearly seen. They're clearly seen. Alright, read. Being understood. Okay, stop. Being what? Understood. Everyone say it. Understood. So, I'm going to tell you that whatever Paul is about to deal with, he says that these subjects are, number one, clearly seen, and number two, understood. Not a mystery beyond comprehension. It's clearly seen. It's understood. Now, what are some of those things? Uh, being understood by the things that are made. Even his, even eternal, power his eternal power. And, and what? And Godhead. In fact, what else does he go on to say? So that they may, or so that they are without excuse. They are without excuse. So Paul said this. He's talking about the things that are clearly seen, the things that are understood. And he said among those things are the God is the Godhead. And he says that there is no excuse for not understanding this. This is something everybody ought to understand. It's not complicated. Man tries to make it complicated. And this, I was talking to somebody about some things the other day and, and uh, discussing the, you know, the, the book that I'm trying to put together. And I told them, I said, you know, you're getting into some areas. I don't mind talking to you personally, but don't expect to see any of this in the book. I'm not trying to reach. I'm not trying to reach the lawyers and, and, and the, you know, the, the, the intellectuals. And, and I, I want to I help the common man to understand things. And I'm putting things as simply as I can in everything that I'm writing. And that's the way I'm going to try to do these lessons too. I want to break them down to a point of absolute simplicity because I believe that's what is going to help us understand. We can make it complicated. We can make it difficult to comprehend. But that's not the plan of God. It ought to be easily understood, readily seen, clearly comprehended. There is no excuse for not understanding it. In fact, I'm going to give you four Bible principles. We talked about one of them last week. Four Bible principles 
that if you get these four principles, you have a clear understanding of the Godhead according to the Scripture. Now, I'm not going to go back and quote historical sources and references. I could, but that's not important. I don't believe that God needed men to work on this for 300 years to come up with answers. I think God's smarter than that. I think God's bigger than that. I think when the Lord Jesus Christ walked on this earth, He he was able to give us every definition we needed. And if it takes 300 years to put together a definition of God, something's wrong with that definition. Ah, because it ought to be, it ought to be understood. It ought to be clearly seen. It ought to be without excuse. So, principle number one, we talked about Deuteronomy chapter six, uh, verses four and five. Principle number one, Deuteronomy six, verses four and five. And here's what those verses say. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Or uh, as uh, as it says in the Hebrews, the Lord in in the Hebrew, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's one. So whatever, however, we're going to define God, we cannot have more than one God at the end of our discussion. There's only one. There is only one. And, and we have to believe that. And then it goes on into verse 5 and says this. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Yes. And so love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul. So, so the reason that I said to you this is the most important subject. Uh, I told you that Jesus said it. This is not in your notes. We talked about it last week. But let's go ahead and get it get for me Mark chapter 12. And, and let's look at what Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Read for me Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 28 and 29. And one of the scribes came, having heard him reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well. Ask him which... Ask him which? Is the first, is commandment, the first of commandment of all. Now, 600 plus commandments throughout the Old Testament, and that's what uh, the scribe is talking about. The New Testament, uh, they did not have at this moment. And so this particular scribe was asking him, out of all of the Old Testament commandments, what is the greatest? What is the most important? And Jesus didn't stutter. He didn't hesitate. He didn't have to think about it. He had an answer immediately. What did he say in verse number 29? And Jesus answered him, the first first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, Israel, the Lord Lord our God God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. See, this is all one sentence. Matthew only quotes the latter half of the sentence, but Mark gives us the entire sentence. Verse 4 and 5, the Jews understood. In fact, this scribe said to him afterwards, Thou hast said, Well, this is the first of all the commandments. This is the most important commandment in all of the Word of God is that there is only one God. That's the most important. And so whatever else we're going to believe about God, it has to come back to the fact that He is one. So principle number one. Principle number one is simply that uh, there is only one God. 
There's only one God. All right, and we could take time. We could go through a lot of scriptures. I gave you some last week, but we could go through all this again and show you scripture after scripture from, from uh, beginning to end, New Testament uh, and Old Testament alike. It is repeatedly stated that there's only one God. So we can't deny that. We can't argue that fact. There is only one God. Now, let's move from there into the second principle that we need to understand. We're going to go over to the book of John, chapter 4. Now, I think your notes only list verse 24, but if you'd find that for me in the Scripture, uh, in, in your Bible, we're going to go ahead and start with verse 23. In fact, verse 23 may be later on right there pretty close. I don't know, but, but uh, we want to make sure we read both of these verses, 23 and 24, so you get a clear understanding of what Jesus is saying. John chapter 4 and verse 23 says this. But the hour cometh and the hour now cometh. is. Now is. When the true worshiper shall worship, shall worship, the, worship Father in the Father. Father. Everyone say the Father. the Father. Shall worship the Father. I want everyone to say the Father. The Father. They'll worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And in truth. For the Father for, seeketh such for, hang on, to work. For the Father. And we'll say the Father. The Father. Is there any doubt, is there any debate that the subject, the topic at hand, is the Father? That's what Jesus is talking about. That's who Jesus is talking about. Or, if you want to make this grammatically correct, that is about whom Jesus is speaking. And so he's talking about the Father. All right? The Father is the one that must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. The Father is the one who is seeking people to worship Him in that way. It is the Father. Right. Then verse 24. God is God. a spirit. Now wait a minute. God. When He says the word God, who's He talking about? The Father. He's, he hasn't changed subjects from verse 23 to verse 24. So when he says God, he is making reference to the Father. In fact, let's read the whole verse and I'll prove it to you. God is a spirit. God is a spirit. And they that worship, and they him, that worship him must worship, must him, worship him how? Spirit and truth. Jesus told us in verse 23, that's what the Father's looking for. Those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. So the subject here is the Father. And Jesus referred to the Father as God. That's right. Alright? So, so when He says God in verse 24, He's referring to... Thank you, let me try that again. When He says God in verse 24, He's referring to... All right, that's better. One more time. When he says God in verse 24, he is referring to the Father. Now, he says God or the Father, what? Is a spirit. Or uh, the word a, of course, there is no uh, indefinite article in the Greek language. And, and so, literally in the Greek, it simply says God is spirit. God is spirit. Either way, I don't care. God is a spirit. All right? What we've got to understand is this. He's talking about the Father. And so he's telling us the Father is a spirit. All right? Now listen to me. If anybody 
could identify who God is, Jesus could do it. So I say, then, why, did, why do we think it took all these councils to get together to give us a, a, a logical and reasonable and understandable definition of God? No, Jesus did it in one simple phrase. You want to know about God? God, the Father, is a spirit. He's not the first person. He's not a person. He is a spirit. I'm going to tell you, this is why it, it, it gets into areas where it becomes beyond comprehension. It's because people are trying to, to put men's ideas and philosophy into something that's really much more simple than this. And so here's what we understand. The Father is a... That's key, church. And if we're going to ever understand the Godhead, we've got to put this into this list of principles. That the Father is a spirit. And any time we read about the Father, we need to quit thinking of him as some old man with long white hair and a flowing beard sitting on a throne in heaven. God is not a person. God is a Spirit. He's a spirit. He's a spirit. And that is key. That is crucial. I can go through. I don't have time to read all these verses, all right? But those of you that are taking notes or, uh, as you know, a lot of times I recommend just get the recording in whatever form you want it in and take notes off the recording. It's much easier. You can put it on pause. Write down what you need to write down. You don't miss anything. But I'm going to call off for you a whole list of verses that identify God the Father as a spirit. It is done throughout the Scripture. Nowhere is God called a person. He's always referred to as a spirit. Amen. John 6, 27. John 8, 41. Romans 1, 7. Romans 15, 6. 1 Corinthians 1, 3. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. 1 Corinthians 5, 24. 2 Corinthians 1 and 2. 2 Corinthians 1 and 3. 2 Corinthians 11, 31. Galatians 1, 3 to 4. Ephesians 1, 2 and 3. Ephesians 1, 17. Ephesians 6, 23. Philippians 1 and 2. Philippians 2, 11. Colossians 1, 2. 1 Thessalonians 1 and 1. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 3.13, 2 Thessalonians 1, 1 to 2, 1 Timothy 1 and 2, 2 Timothy 1 and 2, Titus 1 and 4, Philemon 1 and 3, James 3 and 9, 1 Peter 1 and 2, 2 Peter 1, 17, 2 John 1 and 3, Jude 1 and 1, and on and on and on it goes. I'm telling you that when we read about the Father, we need to quit thinking of a person, we need to think of a spirit. He's not a person. You say, oh, you're splitting hairs. No, I'm not splitting hairs. It's important that we understand that God is not a person. Now, see, a lot of modern theologians today actually are starting to shy away from the term person, and that's good. However, they're trying to put some other definition in there that, again, is contrary to the Scripture. But listen, when you've got to try to create your own definition to support your doctrine, something's wrong with your doctrine. I'll never forget in college having uh, somebody come over from a particular religious group uh, to talk to us in our comparative religions class. And, uh, and she 
wrote on, we had blackboards back then. This is long before the days of all the technology that we've got today. Uh, but but she, we had a blackboard uh, in the classroom, and she wrote the word atonement. And so she took that and she broke it down and she said, what this really means, it doesn't really mean that Jesus forgave our sins. Or the, none of that, none of that. What it really means is, look at it here, it's at one meant. It just means that we become one with the cosmos and we're one with the spirit. You know, what a bunch of nonsense. What she's doing is she's creating a definition of a word that fits her doctrine. And I don't want to be guilty of the same thing. I know what a person is, you know what a person is, and it does not describe God. God is not a person. Jesus did not say the Father is the first person. In fact, he didn't say the Father is a person. He said God the Father is a spirit. He's a spirit. Now, let me, let me go to the one verse of Scripture that, that um, folks sometimes try to use uh, to prove that God's a person. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. And I don't want to confuse you with all this, but, but I want this to be as thorough as I can make it and yet as simple as I can keep it. Praise God. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says this of Christ. Who being the brightness of his glory. Christ is the brightness of God's glory. And the express image of his person. And the express image of his person. And upholding all. all... Now, now, now this, this is what, this is as far as we need to go because we've got to, we've got to hurry through this. We can go through the rest of this verse, but, but this is what people point to. They say Christ is the express image of God the Father's Person. Therefore, he is a person. Now, again, I don't want to get, I don't want to get into uh, too much technicality here, but let me just throw this out and, and let you understand this. That when you read the word person in this verse, uh, this is, uh, and, and, and this church knows I love the King James. I believe the King James Bible really is uh, our most accurate option today. I really do. But that doesn't mean that I think every time it's translated, uh, it's, it's the best use of a word. And in fact, in this particular verse, the word person here, really, that's, that's, that's a poor way to define the Greek word that is used. In fact, if you look almost every other translation out there, almost without exception, there are, there are no, the New King James is one of the few, uh, because they made only a few changes to the King James uh, it was not really a translation. It was really an update of the King James. Uh, there may be one other that I'm aware of, but in almost every other translation, it says that he is the express image of God's essence, of his essence, or his substance, or his nature, or his being. It's not talking about the Father being a person as we know it. The Father's not a person. The Father does have essence. He does have substance. He is a being, but He's not a person. And so Jesus Christ is uh, the express image of the Father's substance. He is the express image of the Father's being. We can get into all that in a little while or in another lesson, and, and probably will. 
But I just want to tell you that there is nowhere in the Bible that God the Father is ever called a person. And there's a reason why. Because making God the Father into a person is putting limits on Him which should never be there. There are things that a spirit is capable of doing which a person could never accomplish. Let's talk about a few of those. First of all, God the Father, a spirit, is omnipresent. All right, you know that, that he is everywhere at the same time. There is nowhere that God the Father is not. He is everywhere. He is omnipresent. Let's look at some scriptures here. Isaiah 66, verse 1. We'll go through these quickly. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth heaven is my Heaven is my store. throne. Heaven is my... See, this is what I tell you. We've got to get this image out of our mind of this old man sitting on a throne. Of, now I know what John saw. We'll get to that later on too. But I'm telling you, we've got to get this image out of our mind of an old man sitting on one little chair in heaven. That's not the Father. The Father said, I'll tell you what my throne is. My throne is heaven. And my footstool is the earth. That's not a person. Read, read, read. Where is the house that ye build? There's a house you could build for me. And where is the place place of my rest? rest? Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. Uh, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Where can I go to get away from your spirit? Or whither shall I flee where from thy presence? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend, if up I ascend heaven, into heaven, there. you're there. If I make, if my, bed I make hell, my bed in Sheol, behold, in the grave, you're there. Behold, thou art there. If I take, if the, I wings take the wings of the, of the morning, morning and I... Dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there, Even there thy hand shall lead and me, right and thy right hand shall hold me. I'm telling you, there's nowhere that God the Father is not. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. No person can be everywhere. I know some of us look like we're trying to gain that status, but... But, um, but God the Father... Is not a person. He is everywhere. He is omnipresent. Jeremiah twenty three twenty four. And these are only a few verses I could use. But Jeremiah twenty three twenty four. Can any hide himself in the secret, secret place that I shall not I see, him? see him? Saith the Lord, Do not I flee? Do not I fill or fill heaven and earth? Heaven and the Lord. earth, saith the Lord. Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord. That's not a person, my friends. That's not a person. That's a spirit. Let's get it in our minds that when we talk about the Father, we're talking about a spirit. Not a person. A spirit. Hallelujah. Amen. Psalm 90, verses... uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Now, God is not only omnipresent. God is also immortal. Now, Now, I didn't say immoral. I said immortal. All right? That means he is everlasting. God had no beginning. God has no end. He was here before there was a beginning. That's clear from Genesis 1 and 1. In the beginning, God. God was already here when the beginning started. All right? God is immortal. He is everlasting. Let's look at this. He cannot die. God, the Father, the Spirit 
cannot die. He's everlasting. Psalm 90, verses 1 through 4. Lord, Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. In all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth. Before the mountains were brought forth. Wherever Thou hast hadest formed the earth and the world. Before You ever formed the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting. From everlasting, I love this. From everlasting to everlasting, Thou art thou God. Art God. Hallelujah. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction and saith, Return, ye children of man, for a thousand, a thousand years, years in the, thy sight in are thy sight as are yesterday as when yesterday is past and as a past, watch in the night. As a watch in the night, a thousand years to God is nothing. You know, Time passes in the night if you're sleeping. This is what the psalmist is talking about. You know, you can go to bed at 11 p.m. and get up at 6. You've had seven hours pass. But they seem like that if you slept the whole night. Right? And that's what he's saying. To God, that's a thousand years. God, God is not bound by time. He is from everlasting to everlasting. That's not a person. That's a spirit. Amen. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Now unto the king eternal. Unto the king. Wait a minute. Unto the king eternal. eternal. What's the next word? Immortal. Immortal. Invisible. Invisible. We'll come back to this. The only wise God. Uh, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. First Timothy 6, 16. Who only hath immortality. Who only hath immortality. Only hath immortality. I'm, telling you, I'm telling you, the Bible puts God the Father into a category that no person could ever achieve. Hallelujah. He is immortal. He has immortality. Now listen, God may give us, after this life, an immortal body. But it was given to us. God didn't get immortality. God just has it. It's always been a part of God's nature. A part of who God is. Nobody had to give him immortality. Alright? He alone possesses it. And whoever else may be granted it is granted it by his power. But he's the one who has it. He's not a person. Dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, no man has seen or can. We'll come back to verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 16 in, in just a moment. I mean, literally just a moment. We're going to come back to these two verses, uh, these last two in First Timothy. The third thing about God showing that he's not a person. First of all, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Secondly, he is immortal. He is everlasting. And third, he is invisible. Alright, John chapter 1, verse 18. No man hath seen God at any time. Now listen, listen. Do we believe the Bible? Do we believe every word of the Bible? Do we believe that every word of the Bible is divinely inspired, or as the Greek says, was breathed by God? So God is really the author of of this verse in John, and, and he says, no man has seen God at any time. Now, this is a clear reference to the Father. No man has seen the Father 
at any time. Why? Because the Father is a He's a spirit, and he is an invisible spirit. Now, here's what the rest of it is how I've proven to you that he's talking about the Father. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten, the only begotten Son, son which, is in, the which is in the bosom of the Father, of the Father he hath declared him. So I'm telling you the subject here, which is in the bosom of the Father, the subject here is the Father. No man has seen the Father at any time. Now look. Church, this only makes sense. If God is everywhere, how could you possibly see Him? The closest thing we have to something that's everywhere is the air we breathe. And and I know the limitations there, but just bear with me in my folly, all right? The closest thing we have to something that is everywhere, at least on our uh, planet, is is the air that we breathe. It's everywhere. Now, if we could literally see the air, we wouldn't be able to see anything else. Everything else would be obscured and be hidden. Right? And that's the way it is with God. There's no way that we could ever see a God who is everywhere. In fact, this verse says no man has seen Him. I'm going to prove to you we can't see Him. Let's let's go on. This is John 1, verse 18. Next is Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, speaking of Christ. And it says this. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? Christ is the image of the invisible God. So, So we can't argue that God's invisible. We can't argue that. This is stated clearly in the Scripture. 1 Timothy 1, 17. I told you we'd come back to this. First Timothy 1.17. Now into the King eternal, King eternal, immortal, immortal, invisible. Invisible. Again, the Scripture's clear. God is invisible. The only wise God. The only God. wise God. We're talking about God the Father. He is invisible. Right. All right? First John 4, verse 12. Listen to this. No man hath seen God no at any time. No man. See, John said it in his gospel, and he came back and said it again in his epistle. No man has seen God at any time. All right? No man has seen God at any time. So let's settle that. We can't argue. We have more than one witness in the Scripture that nobody's ever laid eyes on God the Father. No man's ever seen God the Father. Now, let's go to 1 Timothy 6, verse 16 again. And and before we read this, I want to ask you, um, do you know who wrote the first epistle to Timothy? Anybody know who wrote, besides my wife, anybody know who wrote the first epistle to Timothy? Paul, thank you, thank you. I knew some of you knew it. All right, so Paul wrote this epistle, right? Now, when we first meet Paul in the book of Acts, he's not called Paul. He goes by another name. Somebody said it. Saul. And when we read about Saul, there is a particular event that is taking place. Does anybody know what that event was? Saul was persecuting the church. There's a particular act of persecution that Saul was involved in. 
the stoning of Stephen. Saul was present. He held the coats and consented unto the death. That's what the Bible says. Saul was there when Stephen was put to death. Now, I've had people tell me, Stephen looked up into heaven and saw God the Father and God the Son. And I'm here to tell you, Paul, who was Saul, said, no man. Let's read this verse. 1 Timothy 6.16, here's what he said. Who only hath immortality, immortality, dwelling in the light, light, which no man man can can approach approach unto, unto, whom no whom no man hath seen. This is written after Stephen had his vision. And yet Saul became Paul. Paul said, nobody has seen God the Father. In fact, he goes on and says, Nor can see. Not only, not only is it true that nobody has seen him, he said nobody can see him. So I'm here to tell you, whatever Stephen saw in Acts chapter 7, he did not see the Father and the Son. He couldn't, or else Paul was lying. Right. Because Paul was there. This is not a case of a mistake. Well, you know, I didn't know about Stephen. I didn't, I didn't realize he was the one exception to the rule. No, he was there when it happened. And we'll deal with Stephen. That'll, that'll come later on in this, in this lesson. I'll explain to you what the Bible says Stephen really did see and how all of that did come about. But, but I'm telling you, Paul was present when it happened, and Paul still said, nobody, 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 Stephen, nobody else, nobody has ever seen the Father, and nobody can see the Father. God the Father is not a person. Principle number one is that there is only one God. Principle number two is that God the Father is a spirit. This is important. Let's take him out of the realm of calling him a person and let's recognize him for who he is. I'm telling you, when I teach this, when I teach this uh, at the seminars that I do, I I tell people, I just tell them point blank, it offends me for you to call my God a person. Because the God I serve is much bigger and much more powerful than any person could ever hope to be. Don't put him in the box of personality. That's not the God I serve. That's not the God I serve. The God I serve is not limited to time and space as a person would be. But the God I serve is an omnipresent, invisible, all-knowing, all-powerful spirit. He's much bigger and much greater and much more powerful than what the word person implies. And so let's take that out of the mix, all right? We're not going to call God the first person in the Godhead because the Father's not a person. He's not a person. So I'm telling you, I'm telling you that when you read your Bible, And you read about the Father, whether it's Jesus making statements concerning the Father or or any reference to the Father. You need to immediately recognize we're not talking about a person. We're talking about a 
spirit. Always get that in your mind. Every time you read the scripture, he's a spirit. He's a spirit. He's a spirit. A spirit doesn't die. Spirit is invisible. A spirit, uh, this spirit is omnipresent. This spirit is. God, the Father, is omnipresent. So he's not a person. He's a spirit. And let's, let's let him be a spirit. Praise God. Amen. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to run out of time before I can get all of this next one done. And, um, but we'll get started here, and then uh, I'm going to quit a little ways into it. Uh, so principle number one is what? There's only one God. There's only one God. Principle number one. Let's try this again. Principle number one. There's only one God. Principle number one, there's only one God. All right? You got that. Principle number two, God the Father is a spirit. All right? Principle number two, what is it? God is a spirit. God the Father is a spirit. Now, look, there's only four principles to understand in the Godhead. You got half of them. And none of this is complicated. None of this is hard. This is easy. This is simple. All right, now, let's move on. Let's move on. Let's, let's talk now. Let's go to Luke chapter 1 and verse 35. And uh, I, may not, I may not even get to the point where I can identify principle number 3 yet. We may have to do that next week. But, um, but let's, let's go to Luke chapter 1 and verse 35. And let's start in this verse and see what we uh, learn from this verse of Scripture. Luke chapter 1 and verse 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also the holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now we're going to get into who the Son of God is. But before we do, I want you to understand, I want him to read this whole verse, Luke chapter 1, verse 35. I want you to understand, I want you to, to comprehend what this verse is, what it's talking about, what's going on, what the context is. The context of this is the appearance of the angel to Mary. And the angel is speaking to her about what is about to transpire. Right? Right? So, so the angel is, is talking to her about what is about to happen. Now, look. And, and please, I, I, hope, I hope in all of my... Uh, crazy attempts at humor. You don't ever feel like I'm talking down to you. I, that's not. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not. I'm not trying to uh, belittle you. I'm just trying to be a little funny and make a point. All right. But but there's something in this verse that I think uh, begs our attention because you see there is a principle in nature that God put in motion in creation. And, and it's a principle that's important to understanding the depth of what's said in this verse of Scripture. And that principle is simply this, that whoever causes a woman to be with child, that one is the father. Regardless of to whom a woman may be married, Whoever causes her to be with child is the father of that child. 
Right? Right? I'm not getting enough responses there. I hope you understand what I'm saying. When a woman finds that she is expecting, whoever caused her to be expecting is the father of that child. And so what did the angel say to Mary? Read that again. This is Luke one thirty five. The angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon you. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Who's going to come upon you? The Holy Ghost. Who's going to come upon you? Who is it that's going to cause Mary to be with child? The Holy Ghost. It's the Holy Ghost that's going to cause her to be with child. I'm telling you today that this scripture indicates it was the Holy Ghost right. that impregnated Mary. Right. In fact, this is not the only witness to this. Look, one of the major laws of, of true Bible interpretation is that out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Go over to the book of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 and verse number 18. Now the birth of Jesus, birth of Christ, Jesus Christ was on, was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph. Before they came before together. Before they came together. She was she found, was with, found child with child of the Holy Ghost. Of the Holy Ghost. What does verse 20 say? But while he thought of these things, behold, an angel of the Lord angel appeared unto appeared him to in Joseph? a dream, saying, Joseph... Uh-huh. Thou son of, son David, of David, fear not to take unto thee to Mary thy wife. Mary thy wife. For that which, that is, which is conceived, conceived in her was conceived by what? The Holy Ghost. I'm here to tell you that what caused Mary to get pregnant was the Holy Ghost. The father of the Christ child was therefore the Holy Ghost. Now, we got a problem. Because if God is the first person of the Godhead, and the Holy Ghost is the third person of the Godhead, but yet it was the Holy Ghost that caused Mary to get pregnant, then we've got a major problem on our hands. Because Jesus kept referring to God the Father. Now, either Jesus had two fathers, which he did not, Or he was confused about which person of the Godhead was his father, which he was not. Or the Holy Ghost is the Father. There's no other explanation. Now, why is it called Father in one place? Now, look, let's just talk about this. King James, again, says Holy Ghost. Uh, you know, it's, it is the Greek word pneuma. It is, it is spirit. It is the Holy Spirit. God is a. God is a. And this is the Holy. There's not two different spirits, especially when one of them is everywhere. There's no way that the, that the Father is a spirit and the Holy Spirit is a spirit. And they're not the same spirit, but they're the same God. That doesn't even make sense. But I'm here to tell you. Now, there's a reason why. In one place, it may be called Father. Another place called Holy Spirit. I'm going to tell you why. While I'm standing behind this pulpit, I'm pastor. But when I get home this afternoon, I don't walk up to my wife and say, Your pastor would like a glass of tea. Nor will I come back tonight and say, hey, church, your husband wants you to know we need to worship. 
But both husband and pastor are terms of relationship. And it, it, it depends upon the relationship that is involved as to what title I will take on at the moment. But pastor and husband are not two different people. And Father and Holy Ghost are not two different persons in the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is just another description of the Holy One of Israel that we call God the Father. He was the one that impregnated Mary. He is the one that is the Father of the Christ child. Hallelujah. This is not complicated. This is so easy. It's so easy. Hallelujah. I'm here to tell you, my friend. I'm going to say, in fact, it's, it, is, it is contradictory to say the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. Is he a spirit or is he a person? <laughs> well, I choose to believe the Bible. It is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Now, now look, again, I gave, I gave you a list of scriptures that identify God as a spirit. I want to tell you, the scripture repeatedly refers to God the Father as, like I said a while ago, the Holy One. Ephesians 4 and 4 tells us there is only one spirit. Now, either we believe that or we don't. It doesn't mean two spirits that act as one. This is not complicated, church. When the Bible says one, it means one. There's no hidden meaning in the simplicity of one. There is only one spirit, Ephesians 4 and 4. And God the Father is the Holy Spirit. Let me call off a list of scriptures so that you can, you can get this recording. You can go through these verses and see for yourself. 2 Kings 19.22. Psalm 71.22. Psalm 78.41. Psalm 89.18. Isaiah 1.4. Isaiah 5.19 and 24. Isaiah 10, 17 and 20. Isaiah 12, verse 6. Isaiah 7, verse 7. Isaiah 29, 19 and 23. Isaiah 30, 11, 12, 15 and 29. Isaiah 31 and 1. Isaiah 37, 23. Isaiah 41, 14, 16 and 20. Isaiah 43, 3, uh, verses 14 and 15 also. Isaiah 45, 11. Isaiah 47, 4. Isaiah 48, 17. Isaiah 49, 7. Isaiah 54, 5. Isaiah 55, 5. Isaiah 60, verse 9 and 14. Jeremiah 50, verse 29. Jeremiah 51, verse 5. Ezekiel 20, 39. Ezekiel 39, 7. And on and on and on and on. The list goes. I'm telling you that throughout the Old Testament, God the Father was identified as the one spirit. He didn't split in the New Testament. He is still the one Spirit. Maybe I should say it this way. He is the one and only Spirit. There is no other Spirit outside of God the Father. 
There can be no other explanation to what the Bible tells us in both Matthew and Luke. This child is not the child of the third person of the Godhead. This child was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost. It is the Holy Ghost that is the Father of Jesus Christ. Well, praise God. Hallelujah. I don't have time to get into the rest of this. I want, uh, Becca, I want you to come. We've got a few minutes here, but I think we need a little bit of time that we can gather around this front. Let God begin to put some things in us. We're going to come back to principle number two. I'll identify that next week, Lord willing. Hallelujah. I know we're getting into Christmas season. Somewhere along the way, we'll take a break from this maybe and, and, uh, and do a Christmas lesson. But, uh, but I, I have been feeling so strong and for so many weeks that we need to be doing what I'm doing right here. And, and, and listen, this is not stuff I've gotten off of a shelf somewhere. Amen. I'm, I'm giving you what the Word of God has to say and what I've found through study and prayer. And I'm going to tell you something. We need to get a hold of this revelation of who God really is. We need to understand who He is and quit relegating Him to Human ideology and philosophy. Well, praise God. Amen. I'm glad I know who he is today. I'm glad I know who he is today. Let's stand. Let's lift our hands to the Lord. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Oh, come on. Let's worship the Lord. Let's worship the Lord. Hallelujah. Oh, come on. Let's love him. Let's love him. Let's love him. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. I'm telling you that when we get a revelation, when we get a revelation of who God really is, it broadens our perspective. It, it, it adds a dimension to our trust in him, our confidence in him. God is not a person that he should lie. He's not a person that he should lie. God, I'm telling you, God is a spirit. Hallelujah. We call him the Father. In that relationship that he has with us as our creator, he is our Father. He is the one who caused us to be born Again, He is our Father. And when we speak of Him as the Holy Spirit, these are relational terms. We speak of Him as the Holy Spirit. We're talking about that which comes to dwell inside of us to make us holy. It is the spirit of holiness. It is the spirit that causes us to come out from among the world and be different. We're not talking about two different persons here. And I know, I know, please, you're going to have to bear with me because I know, you know, we can talk about Jesus' baptism at the Jordan River and, and, and we will, we'll get into all that. Let me just throw this out here. There's, there were not three persons at that baptism. 
There were not three persons at that baptism. Um, there were two persons there, John and Jesus. A voice spoke, and uh, we'll talk about all that. We'll, we'll get into all of that. But, but not every voice represents a person. If it does, then the burning bush was a person. And Balaam's donkey was a person. Because both of them had voices. A voice does not mean there's a separate person there. The Spirit, the Spirit, not a person. The Spirit descended as a dove. And that same Spirit that's descending is everywhere. Though it came in form, it is everywhere. And it can still speak from heaven even as it's descending. You don't have two different persons there. Hallelujah. Because God is a... He's a Spirit. He's a Spirit. Let's lift our hands. Let's love Him once more. Let's love Him once more. Oh, how great is our God. What a great and wonderful and mighty and majestic and powerful and awesome God He is. Hallelujah. Oh, let's love Him. Let's love Him this morning. Let's love Him this morning. If you don't know Him, if you don't have that relationship, if His Spirit's never come inside you, I'm telling you, these altars are open right now. You can come, repent of your sins. God will fill you with His Spirit. These altars are open. If you're just here today and you want a deeper revelation and a deeper understanding of the Scripture, I'm telling you, you're invited to come and join us. In fact, I invite everybody. Let's come and find a place to pray for a few moments. Let's come and just talk to this great God of ours for a little while today. Let's spend a little time in His presence here today.